Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm uh, I'm pretty chill, actually. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, really chill. <laughs> Why? Well, Dan, I was just listening to the playback of a um, <laughs> of a tune that I put some guitar on last night. Oh, some your own your own work. Some of my own work. And let me tell you, Dan. For uh, a couple of months, I've been struggling with this song. I just love that you're recording. It makes me so happy. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. I want, you know, the reason I got into this game was to make people happy. Make me happy, I thought you were going to say. Well, I mean, as I've gotten to know you better, I realize that what I want to do is make you happy. (laughs) I originally got into this game to make all people happy. All right. Now it's just, it's focusing down to just one. You know, there are only a few people whose, uh, whose approval I crave and, uh, and I work for them. Uh, but yeah, so I've been working on this song for a lot of months and let me explain a little bit of the process I've been going through. You see, I recorded this album. This is the long winters album. The, uh, the, the missing long winters album. Yeah. I started recording it in 2007 or eight. Okay. And it did not make it all the way through to completion. As everyone knows, uh, now I've started working on it again, but I have, I have very different influences. Now I've, I've matured. It's almost 10 years later and, uh, I'm much more able to, I feel like just be unprecious about it. And so I started to using the tracks that I had already made many moons ago. I started to modify the songs and if anyone who's ever made several records and then taken 10 years off with a record that they've sort of played for themselves multiple times, trying to figure out how to finish it, you know, that diving in and trying to reinvent the thing is pure folly. Yeah. But I did it anyway, because I cannot be dissuaded. <laughs> and, um, and I, and I started to have success at it. I've done this before. There's, there's even a song on this record that it happened this way, where we recorded the song a certain way. And it was, it was pretty metal. And at the oh. idea, uh, it, 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 in the initial recording, it felt like, yeah, we're doing, this is going to be the song on the record. Everybody's like, whoa, pretty grunge. And then uh, even during the subsequent recording process, it was obvious like, oh, that song is dumb. Like that song sounds like a muse song that they left off a record. <laughs> And so <laughs> even at the time I wiped all the other tracks except the drums just wiped it just a just a pure drum part okay. and and wrote a new song completely new song not even in the same key over the top of it and then played it for the drummer later and it's a song I ended up liking a lot played it for our drummer later and he was like what the you know I would never have played that drum part to that song and it was like, yeah, see, that's a little tricky, right? You even fool your own bandmates. <laughs> but what I'm doing now is these tracks are more or less fully recorded. At the, at, for the last 10 years, I've thought, ah, these songs are 
almost ready to be mixed. All they need is vocals. But I got excited about a different sound recently, and I started putting new guitars on top of essentially a full, a fully realized arrangement. Yeah. And I love it. I love the new guitars. I've reinvented the album for myself and it sounds much messier and crazier and fuzzy ear, ear warming music. But there was, there were and have been and are currently a couple of songs that just defy this new treatment. Mm. And a couple of them, I'm like, you are yourself. I will not, will not mess with you. Fair song. But there's, there are one or two where I'm like, stop being defiant. Uh-huh. I know you can take a new guitar. I know you can, I know you can do this. And the songs just, uh, absolutely resist being changed. And I've been, I've been just pummeling this one. It's in uh, the five, four time signature, which again is like, you can't just waltz in there. And play some Tom Petty guitar part. Like, it's got to be a good guitar part. <laughs> oh, I've been throwing everything at this thing. It's like I'm, it's like I'm in a World War I trench and I'm throwing. <laughs> how, much, the, I mean, like, how much time have, do you think you've spent on this? Oh, I don't know. Hours and hours and hours. Just hucking the empty sea ration cans over the top. <laughs> now, are you hoping, doing this in your home studio or are you out in a... You know, I'm here in my office where I, where I, do, the, right uh, now. Where I do the podcasting. Yeah. Right here. And so I was just listening to the track that I recorded late, late last night here. And the problem with that is that I've done that multiple times. Like shut down the system at two o'clock in the morning, turn the lights off and go fixed it. And then you come in the morning and, and you're like gibberish. That is, I can't, I do not even know what I was thinking. I don't know where the one of the part I played is like what, what, what loop was I in? So I walked in here today with a lot of trepidation. I really felt like I finished the song. I put vocals on it even. Really? I walked in. I was like, oh my God, please do not let this be one of those situations where I thought that I had reinvented music. And then it turns out it's uh, it, it just sounds like a food processor. <laughs> and I, Put it on and I played it and I was like, that is good. I did a good job and that song is cool sounding. So, whoo, that makes me feel very chill. This is a big, I mean, this is a really big accomplishment. I think so you've been too. working on this thing for a long, long, long time. I think so too, yeah. I mean, I have, what do I have? I have almost an entire record of songs now. Wow. How many, how do you know how many songs go on a record when you're making one? Is there a number? Is there like an industry standard? Is this just a feel? Like you feel the, like you've done? In the old days, you put 10 songs on a record. Okay. And, uh, but there are limitations to how much music you can put on a vinyl 12-inch album. Because in order for the music to sound good on a, on a vinyl record, the grooves that they actually cut into the lacquer or cut into the, yeah, the initial lacquer and then into the vinyl, the grooves have to be a certain depth and a certain, you know, you want big fat grooves, let's call them. And if you put more 
and more music on there, the grooves have to be thinner and thinner in order to add all this extra tunage. And so at a certain point, the grooves are too thin to have any musical fidelity. And actually the, the needle will start to bounce out of the groove because it's just too shallow. So there's an optimal, optimal amount of music, which is about 22 minutes per side. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's optimal or whether that's maximal, but, mm-hmm. but 22 minutes aside is sort of where you try to land on a vinyl record, which is, you know, 45 minute record. So w- with the advent of CDs, people started making these hour long albums, these right. hour half long albums, but the vinyl constrains you. So, for instance, the Long Winter's record, Pretend to Fall, When I Pretend to Fall, was one CD, but it required two entire 12-inch entire records to, to reproduce it in vinyl. So now, you know, if, if you can find some, if you're doing really long songs, you obviously can't do 10 songs and also have it be 44 minutes. Although I guess you could have four minutes. That, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You could have 10 four-minute songs. I'm not entirely sure about the math of these things, but you do have to, there are certain considerations you have to take. And, um, and obviously now, I mean, I always wanted vinyl for all of my albums. And when I first released the first album, I said to the record label, you know, now let's get some vinyl made. Because yeah. you could still get vinyl made then cheaply and quickly because there were still vinyl manufacturing. Right, like the infrastructure for it was there. Yeah. And uh, the label's attitude about it in 2001 was vinyl is dying. Only the nerdiest of nerds still play records. Do you want to spend the $5,000 it's going to cost to manufacture this on your vanity vinyl? Or do you want to spend that money elsewhere promoting your album? And I was like, this is a terrible, terrible Sophie's choice here. Um, obviously, I want the vinyl, but you, record label, are telling me that it's a vanity project. And they took me downstairs in their, they were running the label out of their house, took me downstairs and showed me 15 crates of John Vanderslice vinyl. And they said, you know, we sold 100 of these and we made 1,000 of them. Mm. And I was like, oh, bummer. And this was a first record. So I said, all right, you know, we'll we'll make vinyl one day type of thing. Turns out we actually did make vinyl one day. And all the Long Winter's records are available on vinyl. But now the vinyl uh, infrastructure is gone. And if you want to make an album and if you want to do vinyl, you have to turn your album in nine months ahead of time really because the the very few places that still press vinyl records and one of them is in the czech republic (laughs) my god they require because all that all that machinery was junked and and it's it's just like elementary schools right in the 1950s they made all these mid-century modern neighborhoods they put an elementary school right in the middle of it because they were selling these houses to World War II veterans who were coming home and having kids. And then by the 1990s, the only people that lived in those neighborhoods were 86 years old. And the elementary schools had six kids in them. 
And so the city shut down. I mean, this is true across the country. The city shuts down these defunct elementary schools at precisely the moment that 30 year olds decide that mid-century modern homes are cool. Right. And then, and all the 85 year olds die. And suddenly this neighborhood that had, that, you know, was a thing where people were carefully cutting their hedges to look like balls and dinosaurs and stuff. Old people, in other words, right. That were Anaheiming their neighborhoods. All those houses sell and all these young families move in. And now suddenly there's tremendous demand for this mothballed elementary school. And the, the city has to five years later, go back in and spend all the money to reactivate this elementary school. It happens, it happens time and time again. And it was the same thing with vinyl. Just at the moment that people were like, vinyl's the only way to listen to music. And it wasn't just, I think what it might be was that hipsterism expanded so much and became such a mainstream way of living life. Right. And all these plants, but I mean, once you take a vinyl pressing plant and you throw it into the recycle, you can't just go make another one. And so here we are. Nine months is the lead time on making a vinyl album. And that's insane. You know, back in the day, the Beatles would get done with a, the, uh, they made, they finished Sergeant Pepper on November 13th and it, the release date was January 4th. <laughs> you know, it was just like the record's done. Let's master it and get it out. Boom. Um, because they were making a record a year or something. And now it's like, well, your record is done. We're looking at a release date about a year from now. You're just like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Unless you want to just, you know, put it out exclusively digitally. But my audience wants vinyl. They're listening right now and they're saying, give us vinyl, give us vinyl. Yeah, they want this in vinyl, I think. Yeah. So I'm, you know. Wouldn't that be fun to start pressing podcasts out as vinyl? That's <laughs> the only way you can listen. Oh God. So the thir- 38, well, but, you know, our podcasts are an hour and a half long, so they'd all have to be two record sets. See? And we have 38 episodes? Yeah. I'm, I, if this is number 39, yeah. <laughs> so that would be, that'd be a real wall wall of vinyl yeah it would i'm kind of into that yeah imagine getting halfway through a podcast and flipping over the vinyl i would love that i believe that falls into the category of vanity vinyl i don't know i think this is you know there's something about the sound of vinyl that people are not they don't appreciate anymore i think well if you're listening and you would buy vinyl and you would buy 38 double albums of road work uh make sure you tweet me after you listen to this episode yeah and if we get enough if we get enough pre-sales we'll do it that's a big set though we could do one one episode that's like a best of like a clip show and press that on vinyl and they'd get it they'd get it in about nine months <laughs> they get it next year well so yeah you know hang on i'm gonna i'm gonna do do some calculations here dan because i feel like we could uh this could be the thing nine month lead time. Yeah. That's right? enough to promote it enough to plan the tour. Well, and what's crazy is the entire set. You could buy the entire set for like 750 bucks. That's right. That's which right. is, which is not that much. <laughs> no, right? Not I mean, if you're a fan, not if, if you're, you're like a, true, a real listener, true connoisseur. And you're like, yes, I want every episode on double gatefold vinyl. And we call it like, all right, a thousand bucks. 
because we have to do the artwork. We have to, you know, it has to be a beautiful thing. Yeah. And then that's not including shipping. Thousand bucks plus shipping. And you could have every episode. You know, if we sold, how many of those would we have to sell? I don't know. We'd have, it's, it'd be a lot of work, but what a beautiful thing it would be. Yeah, I think so. And we'd get in all the, we'd get in all the podcast uh, trade magazines. Yep. Yep. Because it would be first ones to do it. Mm -hmm. Mm Hmm. I think we, we probably even get in wired. You think so? I think wired would do a write up on that. Yeah. I think there, I think there might be an NPR little, I mean, Jesse Thorne would interview us. That's something right there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So I don't know. Think about, think about that. Think about we're always talking about what kind of merch we could sell. That's yeah. like, that's a heavy this is something, idea. this is something real. Thousand bucks plus shipping. And then you join the, you know, you join the record club and every week, every week, a new double gatefold vinyl shows up on your, right. Under- It'd almost be like a, one of those things where they like, you know, they send you something every, every week, like a cheese to try or something. This would mm-hmm. be like a, a, like a weekly, cheese to try. Yeah. It would essentially just be a cheese to try. Right. <laughs> I love this. I mean, pretty, it wouldn't be long before you would need a dedicated room in your house. Right. Cause that's a lot of, that takes up a lot of space. That's a ton of boxes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, sir. Bob, I think I'm we're onto this. something. I think there's something here. I think there's well, something here to explore. You know, I've, I've spent, I've spent most of my adult life trying to make, you know, uh, not just five th- records. Well, yeah, but oh. this one's already made. Well, we could have 40 albums. You know what I'm saying? We do it at, we do it at number four, 40. Episode 40, we, you know, and then we spin them out. It's already done. Like, you don't have to go back and remaster it. You don't have to worry about the, some drum track over guitar track late at night. It's done already. It's perfect as it is. Well, and one of the, one of the, the good things would be uh, maybe we should just stop doing it after 40 episodes. <laughs> and then it would just be like box set. Yeah. All the great shows. And then Merlin and Dan disappeared. You never saw them again. You never heard from them again. Right. And then the box set would be, it'd be like something from the Franklin Mint. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, listen. That'd be you, the way to go out, you know? You got to get this Stour watch uh-huh. while it's still available. Yeah. Uh, a, you know, a full proof set of presidential face coins. Mm-hmm. And then Dan and John, gone. We would like to say thank you very much to Blue Apron. Blue Apron. They have a mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. How do I know? Because I tried it. They sent me some of the of their food. And I was really ready to sort of, because yeah, I don't, I love the aspect of cooking. Like I love watching Chef's Table on Netflix. I like the one about the guy who runs the sushi thing down in the subway in Japan. Like I love all, everything that goes in. And I, I sure do love going to a nice restaurant and having an amazing meal. But the idea of like putting, going, in, well, I got to find a recipe now. How do I know if it's going to be good? And I'm going to shop for all the ingredients, make sure that they're right and make sure they're fresh and make sure that the healthy kind and have everything right there in front of you and make, no, I don't want, I'm not going to do any of that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a, you know, put a, a burger on the pan or on the grill in the back and just eat a plain patty. 
That's no way to live. I have to tell you that's no way to live because it doesn't have to be that way. And whether you're cooking for yourself, your spouse, your family, there's a much better option out there and Blue Apron is going to bring it to you. Not all ingredients are created equal. It matters. It matters what kind of ingredients you use. It matters where the vegetables came from, where the meat came from. But of course, you don't want to break the bank either, right? Well, for less than 10 bucks per meal, Blue Apron is going to bring you great recipes. They're seasonal, so they're always changing. Pre-portioned ingredients that are delicious that will help you make these great meals at home. And it's not like when they send you these these uh, sheets that come with it that have the, the ingredients you need, that it, which they are sending you, and then an explanation of how to cook it. And they show you a picture of the end deal. They show you what it's going to look like. That's what it's really going to look like. It's not like they had some chef in some fancy you know French uh, kitchen making it, and they take a picture of her food. And then you get some kind of slop on a plate that you just wind up giving to your neighborhood dog or something. This looks great. This stuff looks great when it's done and it tastes amazing and you can do it. Japanese ramen noodles, wild caught Alaskan salmon, heirloom tomatoes, like all of this stuff. Blue Apron brings you the best stuff. It's super easy to do it. Even I can do it. So here's, here's what you do. You got to go to blueapron.com. You check out this week's menu and you will get your first three meals free with free shipping. But the special URL, the only way you can do that and support the show is going to blueapron.com slash roadwork. So just memorize that. Blueapron.com slash roadwork. You will love how good it feels to create like a meal at home in your own kitchen. And you're gonna make it and people are gonna be like, no, really, where'd you get this like takeout from where? And you're like, no, I made it. That's going to be their slogan. If they want, they can have that. I made it. But go check it out. Blueapron.com slash roadwork. But, you know, in the same way, I think that, uh, that, you, uh, that you are concerned with having your albums be perfect. You know, we, we, I'm concerned about the show being not perfect. I mean, nothing's what's perfect, but right. having it be really good. And so I actually have some listener feedback oh. about the show. I wanted to read to you. Oh yeah. This is uh this one's from Brian in Indianapolis. And uh, the subject of the email is this is the end. This is the end. Yes. And I, I, my only friend, I'm thinking it's a, it's definitely a doors Jim Morrison reference, but who knows? Right. I'll, I'll, uh, you, let me read it to you. He says, sorry, guys, but I have to say, this has gone too far. Whoa. I've listened to most, if not all, Roadwork episodes from the very start. I have to admit that I was one who was disconcerted in the early episodes by the drop-off-a-table endings of your podcasts. Mm-hmm. Was it a bug in Overcast? Mm-hmm. Was it an incomplete download? WTF. Oh, WTF. But I did not complain. I quickly figured out that this was simply capitalizing on the unique talent of John Roderick to just hang a final comment in the air that if meditated upon by the listener and left to its own devices would only grow in its profundity. Hang that comment. You acknowledge 
in an early episode that listeners had complained about the abruptness of the ending and the Looney Tunes ending. This is his his term. <laughs> All right, that's that's correct. I give it to him. <laughs> the, Lo- the Looney Tunes ending, he puts it in quotes, was funny as a callback to that in the first show in which it was used. Yes. It okay, continued good. to be mildly amusing for the next couple of shows. Oh, how easy does it there? But it got very old very fast. I see. However, I, see. I accepted it on the assumption that less sophisticated podcast listeners simply couldn't handle John's avant-garde closings. Wow, this is a long letter, but he's really he's um, laying uh, it on we're, the line. We're at the halfway mark. Okay, okay. Fair enough. I still did not complain. Wow, he is a stoic. But now a line has been crossed. Woo! And and then he has a very long quote. He says this quote. No talent eight year old who has practiced for literally six minutes per week for a couple of months on his sperm donors beat up old guitar just before it got smashed to pieces over his head. Unquote. Ending. Is simply. I, I I don't even remember. What is our ending? Yeah, the ending is a no-talent eight-year-old who has practiced for literally six months per week for a couple of months on his sperm donor's beat-up old guitar just before it got smashed to pieces over his head. Ending. And But then remind me. Oh, oh what is the actual end? ending? Are we, okay, yeah. this is where uh, you're you're playing the guitar, and I say, okay, mm-hmm. should we end the show? And you say, yeah, I think we should end it there. And mm-hmm. we have a discussion about ending it. The music is going, and then we, we, we end it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, he's commenting on my guitar part. Yes, this is a pretty bold uh that ending is simply not tolerable especially when one knows that john roderick is a professional musician i see my advice for which i know you did not ask (laughs) would be to go back to the tabletop ending now also that is in quotes tabletop is the is the one where it's just it just hangs just just let it let it the avant-garde hang ending i see hang ending but for the love of god at least ditch the one you've been using the last few episodes looney tunes was better than that jiminy christmas and then just on a line all by itself please Uh and that's it he signs off brian indianapolis i have withheld his last name just in case you know for his own privacy well, there are a lot of listeners in Indianapolis, and I know they have strong feelings. Yes. Uh, but uh, how do you feel, Dan, by uh, about receiving this letter? Uh, I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how to feel. I don't know how how one could feel. Mm-hmm. He's I mean, He really doesn't like the ending. I've got let, that from from the email, though. That was my let, takeaway. <laughs> let me ask you this, Dan. Do you have very much experience with critics? I mean, are there a lot of critics of uh, the work that you do that you, I mean, I know we're all, we all have experience of critics now because everybody can tweet at us and yeah, say yeah. boo or whatever, but more experience with like the, 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 the boos than true, true critics, you know, the probably, I would imagine that you have dealt with a lot in, you know, album reviews and, and performance reviews and things like that. Uh, well, so I'd sort of defer, I would defer to. To your the, the, experience. I mean, the thing is, yeah, right. I mean, part of being a musician is that you put your thing out there and the initial response, at least used to be, uh, used to be the exclusive response was from critics. Uh-huh. People either paid or who it's, who self-appointed um, as like arbiters. Sure. And newspapers that had whole sections devoted to just arbiters. And uh, so, boy, you really cared. Yeah. 
even if you didn't care, I mean, you, you know, the worst thing was a poorly written review, both because you hate to read bad writing, but a poorly written review where the reviewer clearly did not know what was happening, mm. right? Did not get the album. Didn't, you know, somebody at one point, I mean, I, there were so many bad reviews that were even, even reviews that were positive, but just badly written and, and they just didn't get it. Uh, I remember reading one review from an alternative newspaper in Utah of all places. That was that sort of cancels out the concept of alternative. I would well, think. you would normally think, but this writer was very good. And the writer said the writer was commenting on the song ultimatum as a, as part of a review of the ultimatum EP. Like they didn't find this later. It wasn't the, version of ultimatum that i put on uh putting the days to bed it was the initial ultimatum and they and they disapproved of the song interesting they they didn't not like it they actually understood it and disapproved of its message because i was because it's a song about being unable to put down roots it's a song about being unwilling to surrender your will to mm-hmm. some to someone else or to the idea of of a of family and community. This person like wrote, and I should have written them a letter and said, "Nicely done," because because I under I understood their disapproval and and uh, I felt like let's sit down and talk about about the nature of love or whatever. Mm. They seemed like a smart person, but that's so rare compared to people who are like. Uh, this record sounds like herpaderp. And you're like, no, it, first of all, A, no, it doesn't. Second of all, like, no, go screw yourself. Um, the, the girl that called me Bob Dylan in a hoodie, I really, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not familiar with, I with really that. liked that review. I think it was for Magnet Magazine, um, a review of one of those records where she said, you know, he uses a lot of words. You're not exactly sure. There's no, there's no direct narrator in the songs. It's uh, like a word storm, but it, but his music conjures up all these uh, wonderful emotional pictures. He's basically Bob Dylan in a hoodie. And I was like, what? Thank you. Oh my God. You, you appear to get my music, but also what a tremendous compliment. And then my label read it and they, and that was the pull quote that they put on their promotional material. And I didn't even mind that as much as, as self-aggrandizing as it was. I was like, oh, well, yeah, sure. But once I started getting, uh, you know, the, the first stuff was the, uh, was the fan page, right? The, the message board. Right. And everybody that went on the message board was already a fan. You wouldn't go on a band's message board to shit on them. Or no if way. you did, you didn't you even were... want to be in that space. Yeah. Why would you register for a screen name just to be a shit? Right. There were some people that did that, obviously, but they were people clearly who were close to either me or some other fan who were trolling. But the message boards were a wonderful place where everybody was gushing about the band and how excited they were and, and, uh, and trading reviews of shows and all the reviews were, Oh my God, they were amazing. Right. But it was only later in the, with the advent of Twitter that you got all these, like, I don't understand what the big deal about this band is. They just suck. And it's like, Hmm, well, it's 140 characters. You're limited 
too. Uh, but I disagree, but I'm not going to reply, but go fuck yourself. Yeah. And for a while I did that. I did that, uh, internet comedian thing where I just blocked anybody that said something bad about me. Uh-huh. And that was gratifying for a while, but after, you know, over time, it's just like, well, what is that? They don't care. I don't care. I just have a bunch of people that I've blocked. I went down and unblocked everybody. When I was running for office, I had some, I had several people blocked and, uh, my campaign staff said, it doesn't look good for a, a, somebody campaigning for public office to have a bunch of people blocked on Twitter. How many people had you blocked? Like, I don't remember. I mean, I never looked at it. I just blocked them. But somebody in my campaign went and saw that I had all these people blocked. And one of the people that I'd blocked wrote for a, not a very extensively viewed website, but an influential website here in Seattle. Okay. A website of like three young women who are very sort of snarky progressives. And one of them said something shitty about a show I played because it's, it's a cross cultural website. They do. Mm-hmm. I don't even understand why people like John Roderick. He's dirty. He's, you know, he's dumb. And I was like, block, <laughs> but they write <laughs> about politics in Seattle. And one of them wrote a blog post that was like, I don't even know why I'm blocked by John Roderick, but I take it as a point of personal pride. Right. And my campaign said, you got to unblock this person. They write about politics. Uh huh. So I unblocked them and then I wrote them directly and said, hey, you guys, you want to meet for coffee and just talk about stuff, do an interview? What about that? And, you know, they thought, oh, boy, we've got a live one here. We're going to get an interview with a city council candidate and we're going to rip him a new one. And I knew that's what they thought. Sure. So we all met at this place called Fort St. George, which is a strange little bar in Chinatown with a very strange name for a bar in Chinatown. And I showed up and they were all, all three of them were there and they were just like, they had pre sneers on, you know what I mean? Like here he comes. Let's right. Let's wait for him to hang himself with his own, his own like half baked wit. (laughs) And I sat down and said, Hello. Let's get to know each other. And by the end of the, uh, the, by the end of the evening, we were all total bros. And, you know, and they said, we misjudged you. You're our, you know, we can't endorse you exactly, but, but you're our pal now. And throughout the campaign, they were great allies. And, you know, and we would talk sort of off of the record about stuff. But you can't do that with every critic. You just have to target the ones who you're afraid. I mean, if you if you reach out to Pitchfork yeah. and say, hey, you guys gave me a shitty review. Do you guys want to meet up and talk about stuff or what I think? They're just going to be like, we're going to write another article about this ham-handed, yeah. pathetic attempt to influence us. But what we have here in this case, this letter, this letter to us, Dan, is an example of someone who enjoys the show. And within the context of the critical letter, they pay several tributes to us, Mm -hmm. indicating that they, they care, they care. Yeah. They're, they are a fan. The length of the letter 
indicates that they are creative, creative and intelligent, but they do not have enough of an outlet okay. for their, for their creativity and their intelligence. Right? In other words, you're saying if they did, then they wouldn't have spent, they might've just sent an email. It was like new, you know, current ending sucks. Yeah. Fix it. Or they would, you know, or they would not care. Right. Or, or whatever. But they, but they, right now they feel underused in their life. Right. And they want a little bit of, they want an opportunity to write a missive about something. But, you know, these days you go out on the internet, you put a hot take on something uh-huh. and everybody just, just dumps on you. Yeah. Oh, no yeah. matter what your hot take is, they just back up the manure truck and say, screw you. You don't know anything. And I'm guessing from the tone of this person and from the fact that they live in Indiana, that they are a, uh, you know, they're a white guy in the mid to late twenties, which is exactly the demographic that nobody wants a hot take from. But if you're given a hot take about a podcast, that's two middle-aged white guys. Mm -hmm. And you presume that, I mean, you dream that those guys are going to read your letter online. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What a validation. You don't expect that. You just hope that they're going to keep it within themselves and that they're going to get it. They're going to recognize you as a fellow traveler. Mm-hmm. Like here's some, but the, what I think what the, what the writer was hoping is that you and I would say, ah, he seems like me when I was younger, he seems like a younger version of me, <laughs> funny, smart, right. And, and, you know, laying down the law on our ending, which I have to say, very artistic ending. I've never listened to it, but I remember making it. Yeah, I remember when you made it too. And it was, you know, you and I were were having a little back and forth as we do, and then some excellent avant-garde guitar playing happened. Yeah. And then the ending was and then the ending was done, right? Yeah. That, this was this was the this was the solution ending. Yeah, because I think people as he described that people were initially they were confused. They didn't understand because there's, you know, podcasting is a new, it's a young science still. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's not, if you're listening to the radio and people are talking and then they just sort of stop talking and you're not <laughs> slammed with, you know, an intro for the next show or a, a very loud commercial or a bumper with a sound effect of a phone dialing or something. Right. Banjo then, music. Right. Then you know that you, something bad has happened either at the radio station or in the world, <laughs> you know, the, the electromagnetic pulses eliminated mm-hmm. all the yeah, stereos. I mean, that's the first, like I often think like if I, if I, people who use like an electric razor, if they're standing there shaving and all of a sudden it just quits, like, oh, yeah. would your first thought be, Oh, the battery must be dead. Or would your first thought be EMP for me? It would be EMP. Sure. Of course. Very ominous moment. Yeah. And you got half your face shaved and you get to deal with the, the, you know, post-apocalyptic world with half, half a shave. Well, but I'm going to say if it was a Red Dawn scenario and the Cubans and Nicaraguans and Russians were all converging on your Indiana hometown yeah, and you walk outside and half your face is shaved, I think that's going to work to your advantage. <laughs> it might. You know what I mean? Like that's not a thing where they're going to say, you're the, you're the mayor of this town and we're going to, we're going to turn you into a factotum. <laughs> they're going to say, this guy's a lunatic. <laughs> Right. Let's let him. Let's let him run into the woods. He's not going to live for long. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but uh, Dan, uh, let, uh, let me ask you this: How does um, how do some of your other podcasts end? You, I guess it depends on 
on the podcast. For many years, I did. Uh, I only did one or two shows that sort of had a cold, a cold open of one kind or another, where you just sort of are in the conversation. And with ours, of course, we say hi to each other first. So uh, and there's a little bit of intro music that happens. I have other ones that are much formal, where I sort of read a scripted intro and and sign off when the show is over. And back to work is a good example. Merlin will say. We're running long. I think we should button this up. And I'll say, all right, sounds good. And he'll say, I love you, Dan Benjamin. I'll say, I love you, Merlin Man. The show's over. Oh, wow. So you end it with like, we are now ending the show. Yeah. And now it's ended. So that people can be sure that, and then, and then we actually play that song, his song at the Merlin. end of the show, the full, yeah, the full song gets uh, played. And uh, whereas, you know, if there's, if it's a more produced show, then there'll be like outro music sometimes. And yeah, it's got all of that. Whereas with this one, we just let it, we just let it go. And it's at the end of a thought. And it's like he said, it sort of just hangs out there. And I always, I always like that. But because I think people are so used to the format of a podcast where there's a sign, signing off kind of a tune and then it's see you see you next week and if you want to get in touch with me you can tweet me here and email me mm. here and facebook mm. me over here and this is my linkedin and mm. but but people didn't like the no i think they oh uh, because the because the the last thought is always like you always like to end it on something that you know, because I, and I know i know when you mean to end a show mm -hmm. because you just don't i say something that's like and then something, mm -hmm. and then you don't reply. I just, yeah. And I'm like, uh, and then I say, oh, right, right, right. right. It's the end of the show. Dan right. is ending the show now. Yeah. Uh, it's not ever a situation where we keep talking and then you cut it for dramatic purposes. You just stop talking. Because I'm, I'm usually, I'm so, uh, as I imagine the audience is, I'm just so like, whoa, like heavy, man. Oh, heavy. You know, and I'm just kind of like, I got to pause for a second and think about it. And then <laughs> after the pause is over, which is what people don't hear, uh, only the, the donor, donors and supporters of the show get to hear this. <laughs> I say, uh, I say, man, we got, we got to end it right there. And yeah, then, you, the end, and then you kind of laugh and you're like, yeah, that's the right place, man. That's good. All right. All right. Yeah. And then we're, yeah. Then we both turn into like members of the doors. <laughs> right. Yeah, man, that's the end. Man. Yeah. Uh, then, we how talk, does, then we talk about our kids and school and <laughs> our and, recipes for hot turkey. dinner. Right. What, how does Roderick on the line end? I mean, I know there's a Merlin hits a bell. Yeah. He hits a bell, but then is there anything else? Does a bell just mm, ring out to infinity? Yeah. I think the bell just usually it just rings and that's it. And it just rings well, and it goes, it goes away. I think that I would need to, I would need to go back and review some of the earlier episodes to see if it was ever different, but it's just a bell. So, so, so we've been trying to solve this problem in order to make people happy. Yeah. Which is never my impulse. Uh, when, when we first got the complaints about the silence, my impulse was to ignore them. Right. But then you and I talked about it and it was like, we want to make people happy. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is confusing. Mm -hmm. Maybe they spend four additional seconds of their life not knowing what is happening. Or, for, you know, maybe they freak out a little bit like, oh, oh, my, oh my God, is my is my phone okay? Did the battery... They freak I... out. Yeah, they start messing with their phone. They drive their car off the road. Yeah. 
Uh, we didn't want that to happen, so we're like, let's put an ending on. But yeah. I felt I felt a little bit insulted being uh, well, because it's, it's, it's but, your art. It's your art. Well, or just like just the idea that somebody's going to write in and say something about the about what they want. So I was like, all right, we'll give them an ending. But then people were mad about that. Yeah, they were very angry because it was uh, because it was a, 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 an uncomfortable juxtaposition because we would end the show on something like. And then the entire village was wiped out. Right. Something a, prof- <laughs> profound. The entire village was wiped out in a giant tsunami and only one child survived. <laughs> right? That was that was that was That's meant it. to be un- meant to be uncomfortable. Yeah. But we got a lot of angry letters about that. And then I have no idea what the new ending sounds like, but I'm imagining that it sounds like you and me talking, kind of yep. like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a little bit of the old, yeah. Right, some of some of that, yeah. Some you know, great guitar, guitaring. And then uh, and then we say, is that it? Is that the end of the show? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. And now this one person doesn't like it. Uh huh. Well, you know, you know what they say. Just like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for every person who's made it here. There are hundreds of others who, for one reason or another, couldn't make it this far. Oh, the people that that were fooled by the dead sheep. Yeah, the dead sheep and the the little dying doves and the which actually they weren't really dead; they were just put to sleep. Put to sleep, and uh, and then the people that were forcibly nabbed and put on buses. Mm-hmm. So for every person here, there were hundreds that didn't make it. That's what uh, that's what he says. Because the ufos. But the thing is, they, they invited were, them here. They were invited. John. Yeah, but did did the UFOs intend? This is something I've always wondered. Did the UFOs intend that all those hundreds of people were going to get on their ship with them? That, <sighs> that they were bringing back all those uh, all those like lost airmen and all the close encounters people. They were bringing all those back, but they wanted to trade them for hundreds more kooks. Uh, I don't. I don't think they wanted to trade them. I think you know. Let's let's say for the sake of argument that the aliens are smart. Okay. I think they had to know that not all of the people that they invited would make it. Oh, and I, I think get it. that they invited a large number of people knowing that not not even half but that that such a small small number of them would actually make it. But I think if everyone had made it that everyone would have been invited to uh to to go on the ship. I see. Anyone who made it. You know, Anyone who made it. Could, it was a big ship. But it ended up just being Richard Dreyfus. No, Richard Dreyfus and all the folks in the red. Oh, the, the prepared, like, trained yeah. astronaut. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So, but those? Richard Dreyfus was the only civilian that made it. Right. The rest were, were secret agents or, or Navy pilots or something. Yeah, right, whatever they were. And then the, the mom made it all the way to two there but all she wanted was to get her son back yeah she did not want to be on the ship at all no well and that's what's confusing to me because they the the ufos brought back all these people that they'd had for 60 years yeah who hadn't aged a day not a day but they only captured that little kid the little like my baloney has a second name it's Uh m-a-y-e-r yep they only captured him like a week or two before. You didn't think they wanted to keep him a little bit longer? I don't know what the story was with the kid. My thinking as, an, as now as an adult 
is that the kid was just cute. They just want to hang out with him for a little bit. Yeah, but they did all that, like, ramble the refrigerator, scare the shit out of yeah, the, the mom. The mom was was tormented. That was fairly unprecedented, right? Usually they pick up people on abandoned country roads. and uh, At maybe night, they, when maybe, they're yeah, alone. Maybe, maybe they sneak into your house and disguise themselves as owls. Right. But they don't hover over your house and rattle it. Right, and it seemed like he was the only one that was taken, that the that no one else except the little boy was abducted, yeah. per se. And that definitely was an, an abduction. Yeah. And what creeped me out as a, as a youngster watching that movie was how interested and willing the boy was to go. He knew. He knew that they were friends. Yeah. But, but yeah, he's the, he is the, the most special of all the abductees. Right. And yet they just give him right back. Now, if you were, see, the, the, the wonderful thing about uh, the logic of religious people is that the, the Lord works in strange and wondrous ways, right? Right. So if this were part of a, uh, if this were part of a religious experience, which let's just, let's take it as read. Okay. It is. Okay. One might, uh, make the interpretation that in order for Richard Dreyfus, who was the actual person that they wanted in order for him to make it there, he needed the assistance of the mom character. Mm -hmm. And in order to get her assistance, they needed to take the little boy. Okay. All right. You're thinking ahead here. Yeah. So that the only way to really get her buy-in was if they also pulled the kid. Right. But if they really wanted Richard Dreyfus, Dreyfus, they were hovering over his car at a stop sign just like a couple of weeks before. Mm -hmm. Gave him half, half face suntan. Do you think that it's they possible? They could have just taken him then. No, I know. I know. You're right. And were they looking for him? Had they already identified him as the guy that they wanted? I don't know. I mean, is there predestination? Do the UFOs know everything and therefore they know who's going to the heaven of being inside the spaceship? Or is, does, things that are does not your, answered. I mean, does your behavior on earth determine somewhat whether or not you make it on the spaceship? These are, there are a lot of questions, but why they took it, I think it has to gave him back. I think, I think they would have kept that little boy for a long time. They wanted him bad and he wanted them. No, he did. He walked away from his mom without even looking back or did he look back? You know, no, I don't know. He, he did not look back. He was running in the woods and she's Barry, Barry. And he just looks up and he kind of laughs and runs on his merry way. Yeah, he's like, F you, mom. My daughter going into kindergarten is, she's been at the same school for the last uh, couple of years of preschool, loved it. Now this is a new school and her best friend's not going to be there. And, she, you know, mm -hmm. she's about about the age, about Barry's age, I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, he, I don't know if he was five or six, but she's yeah, about but the, that age. The kindergarten isn't going to come rattle your refrigerator and, no. and scare the shit out of you, no. presumably. No, but right. still she's crying about it. Yeah. She doesn't want to go. She's, it's going to be different. Her best friend's not going to be there. But if aliens came, like, I don't think that would turn her, turn her around and change her mind. She, well, I'll go with them. I just don't want to go to kindergarten, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe he wasn't really planned and they saw his interest. What were they doing in their fridge? What do they want with their fridge? Makes no sense. Well, but think about it. The fridge is where you go up the stairs to meet Zoser. 
right? The fridge, you open the fridge and there's Zoso, a staircase. You mean Jim, Jimmy Page? No, not Zoso. Huh. Uh, uh, the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper. Uh, Zool. Zool, right, Zool. And then Gozer. 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 Gozer and Zool. I yeah. conflated Gozer and Zool. I like it. <laughs> what, that's did inside- call- what did you call Zoser? Zoser. <laughs> uh, that's what's inside the refrigerator, right? <laughs> yeah. You go up the stairs to Zool. So there's a, I mean, does the Ghostbusters uh, world and the Close Encounters world, do they share a world? Right? Are they, are they internally consistent? Are the, is it the Marvel universe? No. That's what I want to know. Is it all, what we need now is a third movie where the refrigerator plays an important role in moving to a different plane. Can you think of a third movie, or is this something that needs to be... I don't think there is one, yeah. This needs to be something that that, uh, that is made soon. Joss Listen. Wheaton, who I'm sure listens to this podcast. Oh, yeah. No, I, you joke about that. We You you, you bring a quite an interesting set of listeners. Do I bring all the boys to the yard? Yes. Uh, I want I want to see that movie. I want to see somebody walk through the refrigerator. I want, I want, first of all, a scary refrigerator, because both of those are scary. Scary fridge. And then Scary Fridge opens. It was, I mean, Scary Fridge in, in uh, Close Encounters was just, it was just meant to be scary. The little kid didn't go in it. No, he did not, which would so, be scary for a different reason. So Ghostbusters, that's right. You don't want to let a kid go in a fridge. No. So then, the, then Ghostbusters ups the ante, original Ghostbusters. Wait a minute. Have you seen the latest Ghostbusters? I haven't seen it. Is, there might be a fridge. Have you seen it? Well, no, I wouldn't have said might. Yeah. Well, I thought you were saying might as if to imply that you don't want to spoil the movie in some way for me. Oh, no. You're saying, oh, there might be a fridge. I'm happy to spoil movies for people. Okay, good. Let me. I want to state for the record, I'm not one of the people who is against the new movie. I just haven't been to see any movies in a while. I don't think you need to say for the record that you're not against the I just new want to say, I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not banning it or protesting it or something like that. <laughs> I know, but the only people that would conceivably be against the new... It's a movie. ...movie are people that wouldn't... We would not be still in conversation after all these many... Right, sure. After all these many years. Yes. <laughs> we would not... Uh, we would not have any common cause because somebody who would protest that movie is a dingling. And you're not a dingling, Dan. Thank you. I think the next, I think the next refrigerator needs to actually be the vehicle. The refrigerator starts rattling, the door opens, smoke comes out, but then the refrigerator falls on its side and the protagonists of the film jump in and it's like a space toboggan. Yeah, I don't know. No, you don't. No, I feel like, I mean, I'm. You were silent just long enough there where I thought like maybe you were going to end the, end that the was show. That the there. end of the show? Like, that's not very profound. No, man. no. Let it ride a yeah, little. Yeah, we need more than that. No, I don't know. I feel like that the fridge, the fridge has been played out. There were so many things with the fridge. Didn't Poltergeist have a thing with the fridge also? Mm. Or was it just the meat on the counter sliding around? She went into the television, right? Yeah, she went in through the, t- the TV was kind of the gateway. That seems like very similar mm-hmm. a- appliance gateway. Mm-hmm. I bet you there's somebody listening to the show that's going to make a little spreadsheet of all the different times that appliances played an important role in in contact with the supernatural. Gosh, I hope so. 
Well, let me ask you this. Why now. would all that? But there's a lot of stuff in Close Encounters that doesn't make sense. Like in the scene when she, they're coming to get little Barry out of there. Yeah. All of the toys sort of spring to life. The vacuum cleaner is right. coming to life and, and powered on and vacuuming. Sure, like a Blade Runner foreshadowing. Yeah. And all the way- all these things kind of floating toward toward you and the dishwasher's going nuts and I don't None know. None of why. it makes any sense. Why this little kid? Why that one house? Doesn't make Man. any sense. Come on. It's not realistic. Everything else in that movie is photorealistic. Yep. It's exactly as it happens. Yep. And then all of a sudden, this completely inconsistent behavior on the top on the part of the UFOs. Yeah. You know, one thing that's that we never consider is: Are there two different types of UFOs arriving on Earth at that moment? Are there the friendly ones that have the little funny little uh, orange or the little red light that follows along behind them? Uh-huh. Like the fun, frivolous ones, right? The ones driving the little the little cars around. Yeah, and Burns, then the other giving ones, people sunburns, who are more impish, uh-huh. who you know they're not evil exactly, but they're shaking appliances, they are do, they're burning people's faces, they're scaring people a little bit. Maybe there are two. Maybe there are two two different groups. Well, you know that's that's time. definitely I'm um, explained some things. I think that's also explained some things in in what we hear about. Uh, reports of ufos is that you know why would there be only one kind maybe there's more going on in 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 the world right now that people are constantly reporting on do you mm-hmm. are you a believer in in ufos like we talked about this once but do you accept it as a possibility or are you kind of thinking that i absolutely accept it as a possibility because i cannot rule out something that i know so little about yeah and that we collectively know so little about Right, like there's so there's so much about it that it, that is just wish fulfillment, fantasy fulfillment. Yeah, but there's also, I mean, all the Carl Saganisms, where you just go, "Are you kidding me?" Like, I'm going to make a definitive statement. It's the same thing with God. You're going to make a definitive statement about it. I mean, right? I don't think that I do not I do not follow the precepts of any religion. But I'm not going to make any definitive argument about God, because how could I? What a what what like a, what a ludicrous amount of hubris. Mm. Um, and also a little bit of you know some of that is the uh, is the Alcoholics Anonymous influence, where where most people go into AA thinking I don't like this religion thing. This sounds like a cult. Not most people, but like most of the skeptics. Mm-hmm. Their big complaint about AA is that there's some God element because no group of people was ever so smart as a group of alcoholics on their absolute like last legs. It's the, they're the most brilliant people and they are absolutely totally the best people to judge whether or not there's a God (laughs) is somebody who's drunk, drunk themselves into a situation where they have to go sit in a church basement um, but they're all like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to join this cult. That's bullshit. I'm going to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you get there and the, and the wise people there, the wise ones look at you and they go, yeah, it doesn't, you can, whatever. If you want to make this pencil, your God, go right ahead. We don't give a shit. We really, really do not give a shit. All you need to say is you don't know. And 
once you say you don't know, then you're on the road to saying maybe there's something, something, some one thing that's bigger than you and your fucking solitary intellect. And just focus on that. That's all. That's the, the whole game. And so as part of, as part of undergoing that process of deprogramming, deprogramming from the, the actual cult of thinking that I'm the smartest person in the world. Uh, I arrived at a place where I was like, okay, fine. You know what? Let this pencil be my guide. <laughs> Maybe there is a God. Maybe there is UFOs. Maybe there's someone in the world smarter than me. Maybe it's George W. Bush. Mm. I read an article the other day written by obviously a George Bush apologist, but uh, the George Bush apologist said, I want you to consider the fact that George Bush is smarter than you. He misspoke several times and people uh, love to quote those misspeakings, but he got to be president of the United States and that's because he's very smart. You couldn't be it. You could not get to the presidency. Even if you had all the money and all the friends in the world, if you weren't super duper smart and capable. And I was reading the article and I was like, Hmm, I am one of those people who's pretty sure that George uh, Walker Bush is a dumbass. But this article is making a compelling point that a lot of the reason, 99% of the reason I think he's a dumbass is that he did things I disagree with. And the writer was saying, consider for a moment that he just has different values than you do and different opinions about things. And I do that all the time with lay people where I go, this person isn't stupid. They just have different values. But I didn't extend that grace to George W. Bush because I, because I didn't have the capacity to do it because I just hate his face. <laughs> but it was a, I, I did feel like this person was uh, like a, an apologist who was, you know, farting lilacs. Um, but yeah. Okay. Maybe George Bush is super smart. But you believe you're pretty confident that George Bush exists. I know for a fact that George Bush exists. Not that I've ever laid eyes on him personally, but I trust my peers in the, by which I mean other people in the world enough to feel like they are not Truman showing me about George Bush. Right. If they were going to Truman show the shit out of me, they would come up with some better plot lines than the Iraq war. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like this would be a much more, this would be a more fun reality, I think. Or, or, or the bad stuff would be worse. We would also like to thank Wealthfront, the automated investment service with nearly $3 billion in client assets under management. Could be some of your money in there if you want to save for the long run, save for the long term, for yourself, for your retirement, for your family, for your kids. That's what Wealthfront is all about. And like I said, $3 billion that they're managing for people. The average is about $60,000. But it could be as little as 500 bucks, or as much as a million dollars if you got it. Why, why are people using Wealthfront? Why would you use Wealthfront and not just go to some wealth management professionals? Because the wealth management professionals, it's kind of a racket. They're going to charge you a ton of money. They're not going to talk to you unless you've got a million dollars to invest. 
and they're going to take 1%, 2% per year in management fees, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it really adds up. Wealthfront is different. They only charge 0.25% per year for their management fee for accounts over $10,000. If you're under that, nothing. It's kind of amazing because they use the best of modern technology, rigorous investment research. They cut out the middleman and they give everybody, anybody, sound investment management. And they do it all for you. They move things around from one index fund that's performing well to another index performing. If the one, first one isn't doing as well. All of that stuff, it happens all the time in a way that a human being wouldn't want to do. It's great. And you can get started too at wealthfront.com slash five by five. Use that URL. They will manage your first $15,000, not ten. But for those, uh, those people who go to that URL, 15000 entirely free of charge for life. So in addition to never paying commissions or any hidden fees, you will not pay any management fees to have your first fifteen k invested. So go check them out and support the show. Make them proud, happy sponsors. Wealthfront.com slash 5x5. I remember, I forget who it was I was talking to. Yeah, it was my father-in-law. That's who it was. And I was asking him, you know, did he, did he, and he's, Kind of a religious, not super religious, but way more than way more than me. What kind of religious? Christianity. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember asking him, like, you know, what do you do? You believe that UFOs, uh, aliens, exist? And then if if the answer to that is yes or maybe, do you think that they have visited Earth now or any time in, in our history? And he kind of took, you know, he took the safe kind of road and said, well, I, you know, I believe it's possible, but he, you know, he kind of said he doesn't act, like actively believe it. Yeah. And I said, well, what would it, what would it take other than direct firsthand experience for you to believe it? And he said, well, if, if my brother came to me and said that he had, he had firsthand experience with it, he's like, then, then I would believe it. Oh. So, but that was the only living human that I said, what if I told you? He's like, no, forget that. Uh-huh. But his brother, then he would uh-huh. believe that. His brother is the, is the, uh, I guess the rational one. I see. So <laughs> would he believe it if he woke up one morning and there were giant, uh, motherships hovering all the major, hovering yeah, if there was the fir- firsthand, if he could, if he could lay eyes on it, then yes, I'm, I'm quite sure that he would. I can't separate my desire for there to be ufos which i have a very great desire for there to be ufos oh yeah i have a very great desire for uh, to wake up one morning and there are ufos hovering over all the cities i don't know why i because i have a very i have a very high tolerance for disaster yeah like whenever something crazy is happening i just want it to be the craziest yeah like I woke up this morning and there are all these news reports that Russia is massing tanks and battalions of troops all around the Ukraine. And there's all this talk about the fact that Putin is doing it in advance of the G5 summit right. in order to, uh, you know, in order to play his hand a slightly different way and, mm-hmm. and, and to destabilize the West's relationship to the Ukraine. And I'm reading all this and I'm like, yeah, but what if he's just losing his mind and he's going to invade the Ukraine with a thousand divisions? The Ukraine is not so easy to invade. The Ukraine will fight. Oh my God. I'm calling it the Ukraine over and over. I apologize. I mean, Ukraine. I do not mean the Ukraine. The, right. I'm so sorry, listeners from Ukraine. I do this all the time, Dan. I was raised 
to call it the Ukraine because it was a part of the Soviet Union. I've been over this before, but I have to say it again. My entire life, it's like Rhodesia. <laughs> Once you have called a thing Rhodesia your entire life, it's very hard to, to stop calling it Rhodesia. What should I call it? What should you call Rhodesia? Yeah. Oh, let's find out. I, I, well, like a ro- the, where, where the Rhodesian Ridgeback is from? Uh, that's right. That's the only time I hear it mentioned. Well, so Rhodesia is... Uh, it's an unrecognized state. Oh no, it was unrecognized. Oh, so it's modern Zimbabwe. That's what it is. Okay. So Rhodesia, which was named after, uh, uh, Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, uh, who was some British, uh, scallywag after it, after it became a, uh, after the colonial powers were pushed out, okay. it was changed to Zimbabwe and that happened, I guess, in 1979. But I I learned about Rhodesia, and you know, when I was initially studying Africa, and it was you know it was one of the later nations to make its independence from the colonial powers. It wasn't one of the 1964 ones. It was it was late 70s, and so I still it's. I mean, I know Zimbabwe. I'll talk about it all day, but I. Rhodesia and the Ukraine is this terrible thing because Ukrainians are insulted by calling it the Ukraine because that is a geographical description rather than a political description. Right. Right. And they say, you take, you know, explaining this uh, early on, you don't call it the Poland. Right. But it's very, it's very hard for me to get it out of my head because I don't know why, because until 1990, That was what you, you know, but I mean, I taught my dad to stop, uh, to stop calling people Oriental. Mm. That's a big one. I mean, that was very hard for him because that was, he did that for 60 years before it was not allowed anymore. Right. But my dad didn't call, didn't use the word Negro past, uh, 1972 probably. So anyway, I should stop saying the Ukraine, but, and there, and any Ukrainian listening is already going to be mad that I'm sitting here wishing that the Russians would invade Ukraine. Yeah. But I'm also praising Ukrainians because they would fight the Russians tooth and nail. But anyway, that's just, that's just because I like disaster. I want to see disaster and I don't, I'm very, you don't want a, a loss of life. Let's say if my choices were tsunami hitting the West coast of the United States or tsunami not hitting the West coast of the United States. Yeah. Tsunami hitting the West coast would be bad. It would kill a lot of people. It would fuck everything up beyond belief. Yeah. But it doesn't keep me from sort of not wistfully thinking about a tsunami, but feeling like, I guess here's the process. Mm Mm-hmm. If a tsunami is inevitable, which everyone seems to believe it is, if it's inevitable and it's going to hit the United States at some point, why not have it happen now while I'm alive? And in fact, why not have it happen right now? Because why not? Why not have all inevitable things happen right now? Because 
Why not? If it's well, if a tsunami is going to hit the United States in a hundred years, I'm going to be, I'm not going to be around to see it. That sucks. If UFOs are going to come and hover over the cities, let's get it going. Let's, let's get that happening. Like I'm super bummed by what's happening you don't, in Syria. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I think there's something though that people kind of take for granted, which is like, you know, you, you get, it's easy to get kind of comfortable with what you have and it's easy to sort of forget that things could be much, so you think they could be better, but they could also be much, much worse. Like I've been through a handful of hurricanes down in, uh, in Florida when I lived down there and they really suck. They really, really, really sucks. It's not, I, I, I mean, I remember when there was a borderline category one hurricane. I think it was more of like a severe tropical storm. Uh, it, it landed as a hurricane. And by the time it made it through the center part of the state, it had weakened to tropical storm levels. And I went out in that just to see what is this like? You know, I want to, I want to go and stand in hurricane force winds. Yes. And I did, and it was, you know, it was crazy. I mean, it's, 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 the winds are very strong and it's amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, like we had a bunch of water damage to the house and we lost power for a while and the roads were all flooded. You couldn't go anywhere. And there were aspects of it that those are super minor inconveniences compared to even friends of mine who, you know, they, they couldn't be in their house for like three weeks, you know, and there's, other, I don't think anyone died on that one, but there were people who lost their homes completely. You know, it could be much worse. It's easy to, you know, once that happens, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of I got it pretty good right now. With I can flip this switch and the lights come right on. Right. You know, like why would you want to go through those hardships? Right. Well, everything. I mean, there's collateral damage to everything, and obviously, like at one level, I do not want to be the person whose house is taken away. Yeah. But I'm also, I'm not, this has been a, this has been the source of a lot of, uh, wrestling for me, mental wrestling, because there are people who are so moved by other people's suffering that they, they devote their lives to mitigating other people's suffering. Sure. Um, and at every level, you can find more people suffering. So, like, Habitat for Humanity builds houses for people that don't have houses, but there are people suffering worse than not having a house. And so, there are places in the world where you can go and actually, like, pre- prevent children from dying. And still, even then, there are other children who are dying. They need more help, right? There are, at every level, you can, you can devote yourself to helping other people. And then there are people who say, well, running for public office is devoting yourself to helping other people, going to the Peace Corps, right? And you contrast that level of helping other people. And then if you talk to an investment banker, Right. On Wall Street, who's being paid a million dollars a year to initiate some trades, they will describe their own contribution to the world as helping other people. Okay. Because if, if they weren't maintaining the, as they imagine their jobs to be, or they imagine their role is 
to maintain this system of credit that enables people to buy the materials to build the houses for people. You know, they see themselves at the top of a trickle down food chain that the whole game is to help other people. Uh, They are deluding themselves. But, and a lot of us feel like, well, why would you get paid a million dollars a year to do that? And they're like, cause it's really hard. (laughs) But you know, there is a, there's a rationale, a justification that, that most people can make that they are helping other people. All these people that go to war against taxation, where a lot of us sit around and go without taxation, like all these people will, there won't, they won't have access to, to services. Mm -hmm. The roads will crumble. Like we see the nasty effects of, of, uh, tax revolt all the time. T- the c- cities fall apart, but the tax revolters see themselves as helping other people, helping other people throw off the shackles of a. Right, of it's like a, the people that you know hack all the uh, the credit cards and all the other you know big companies. They think that they're helping. Yeah, that's right. And so, in my own life, I have a a very very strong desire to help other people. It's a, it's a a major motivator for me and it is for everybody in my family where we all see our role in the world as contributing to the betterment of human beings. And we're, when we all struggle to figure out exactly what our job is and the, and the key seems to be that you're meant to help people a certain way and you can't judge yourself if your way of helping people is to uh, be in politics and try to help people, you can't lay in bed awake at night wishing that you were in Guatemala uh, helping people more directly, one-on-one. It's astonishing that Jimmy Carter has spent as much time as he has doing the, you know, doing the actual like swinging a hammer building a house until you realize that Jimmy Carter is, has always been a politician and he does that work in order to popularize it and make it seem doable to people. And he's, he's expanded just his involvement alone has expanded habitat for humanity and, you know, made that work seem noble. And that is also, I mean, that is, that has resulted in more houses being built. Right. But what's my job? I don't know. And part of, trying to figure out my job is realizing that in the micro I'm, I don't have a, I don't have a clear sense. I cannot differentiate between the, the help, the nobility of working at a food bank versus the nobility of going to a, a poor country and actually directly saving three lives a day or something. And, and I, and I don't feel compelled to do, to do either work because somewhere in my cosmology, I don't actually regard any one individual human being as being especially important, myself included, like saving individual lives Mm -hmm sort of feels like, yeah, I mean, that's, that is, that's work for someone that's, that's rewarding work for someone. But I, 
see the world in a different light and feel like, you know, that there are plagues and there are disasters and there are wars. And it's hard for me to see any of those things as being incompatible with nature. Even, you know, we don't lament. In other words, they are, they're not bad or inherently bad. Is that what you mean? Like they're not inherently bad in and of themselves. Yeah, essentially, because because if you trace back the idea that those things are bad, you arrive at a place. You arrive at a at a human intellectual moment where where we determined at a certain point that that certain lie certain life was sacred mm-hmm. and other life was not. Right. We we don't lament a million dead ants. We don't. I mean, some of us lament all the. Uh, 800-year-old trees being cut down to make sawhorses and and shitty buildings that get torn down later. Yeah. Other people don't lament that. But somewhere up the food chain, like, people start lamenting the death of giraffes. But not uh, not everybody, but some. And then as we move further up the chain, we definitely, you know, it's against the law to kill human beings. But that's all thought technology. That's not that's not inherent or implied by the way the rest of nature works. And and it and it and it presupposes a morality that I think, you know, that I still wrestle with what it extends from. Hmm. So I don't look at tsunamis or hurricanes from the standpoint of how it um, adversely affected my neighbors, for instance. I mean, I don't wish I would never sit and wish that my neighbor's house would be destroyed. Although there is one house in my neighborhood. I wish was destroyed. I sometimes imagine a very localized natural disaster that just takes out this one house. Um, I wouldn't wish that ill on anybody, but I, it, but it doesn't inhibit me from being excited about. It. I chased, I chased a tornado across Ohio one time oh, really? and I was, and I was about 45 minutes behind it the entire way. But I was like, in some ways first on the scene to the destruction and it was a big tornado and you could see the path. It was, you know, it was just going right through a big stand of trees and you could just see that it had splintered. I mean, it had, it was scorched earth across the rolling hills of Ohio. It wasn't one of those like out on the flat plains where it was just, you could see it from a thousand miles away. It was like a stormy day and you, and you drive along these roads and it was just like splintered house. Just this house gone, the house next door standing. And I was frantically chasing this tornado, hoping to get a glimpse of it and hoping to be kind of taken up in it. Not, not like, not like flown in it, but like taken up in the storm of it, being there on the, on the edge of it. And I know it would be scary and, and, and I don't diminish the impact of it on people's lives, but just like it's happening. It's going to happen somewhere. It's going to do this somewhere. I would just like to be there to see it. Did you see the video of the lady who was sitting in the wreckage of her house with her tornado and she was lamenting the loss of her dog. And then somebody said, what's that? And they all looked down 
and here was this little dog struggling to get out of out no, from I under some that. piece of wreckage and everybody was like oh, it's the dog and she went over and she was like help me help me and they a bunch of people came over and took all this garbage off and there was her dog and she picked up her little dog and it was a miracle she's a little old lady and you felt like all is right with the world like her house is gone Right, but she's got her dog back. But she found the little dog. The yeah. little dog survived. It's a freaking miracle. So, I don't know. I mean, I love those miracles, too. But part of discovering what you want to do, what, how you're going to contribute to the world, is also maybe somewhat like crossing off some other ways that you're going to, like, I can't, and I still don't know how, how I'm meant to serve. Maybe it's through the shows and the music. Have you ever thought about that? It's through the, the 38 vinyl uh, episodes of our show. Well, I mean, you know, this is something that I think about a lot and that is people frequently don't know how much the, the stuff that they do. And I'm, I'm talking about people who have some kind of reach, even if it's a relatively small reach, but the kind of stuff that they do, whether they're, especially if they're a musician or an artist or, you know, a writer, podcast or whatever, but people who are sort of creating something that goes out to an audience, once the audience hits a certain size, I don't know what that is, but I feel like once it goes to a certain size and enough people are sort of appreciating it, but then you kind of are making some difference, even if it's a small difference, you, you kind of are. But I don't think that the person necessarily realizes that in other words i don't think it's possible for you to fully comprehend how far-reaching or beneficial maybe the albums you've made are to other people because you're in too closely involved in that creative process you're too connected to the you know because when you think of an album perhaps i'm i'm basing this on things you said to me when you think about the album or the song you maybe are thinking about, oh, right, I don't, I don't perform it that way anymore. This is how he did it. This is the way I had to change the guitar. I forgot what the guitar actually sounded like because I play it this way so much on stage. Or, oh, I wish I had done this this way or whatever. Like you're, you're thinking about the aspects of making the song. You're not thinking, how is this song affecting you know, this person who just happened to run into it and play it for the very first time on, you know, Spotify or heard it in a restaurant or a bowling alley or wherever they happen to hear it or on that TV commercial. You know, I don't think it's possible for you to comprehend all the ways that people are being reached by that song that you wrote, you know, 10 years ago. Like, is it like you can't know that. Well, and I, I think you're I, already doing the job. You're already doing good. I can I can know it because uh, obviously songs and and written work and performed work have also touched me and made my life easier and you know, I I would never say that anything like that had saved my life because my life was never in at risk, but certainly like altered my life, improved my life. So I am familiar with that and, you know, and I'm, and I'm able to accept that that's been true of some of the things I've made. But the, the question is, why do I still feel dissatisfaction? 
Yeah. And I, and I don't know whether that's inherent in the life of an artist or whether that's inherent in all life of, uh, of people. But I, you know, there must be some people who make a beautiful thing and then say, my work here is done. But most of the creators I know continue to create because they don't have that feeling. They don't relax and say, um, you know, I made a, I made this album and that is the, that is why I was here. Maybe they look back, but like, you know, Neil Young made harvest in 1970 when he was 22 years old or something like that. I right. Mean, he can't, right. It's still his, it's still his, uh, one of his great works, but he didn't rest. And, uh, and so because I, because I'm not, I'm not confined to music and writing as my only form of expression. I have the additional problem of when, when I encounter that dissatisfaction, I don't go back to the guitar always. And I think if, if Neil Young feels like he hasn't done good, he goes back to the guitar because that's his instrument. And you know, he started the bridge school concert, but it's a concert and he got very active politically by writing political music and doing concerts. So, so, you know, being, having a multiplicity of outlets like the podcasting, I don't, or even fucking tweeting. God damn it. If I feel like I need, if I wake up in the morning and I have a feeling of incompleteness. I, I, there's a whole, I un, unroll my little tool roll and I can grab a lot of different tools and I, and that might increase my dissatisfaction actually. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like, do you feel like you, well, first of all, do you feel like you were put here to help mm. or, I mean, I think there are a lot of people that feel like they were put here to survive and, and also like, promulgate and and feed their families and and help their immediate family which is like also noble um this sort of self-sacrificing ethic where i'm driven to help other people maybe at, at my own expense and that's the, that's the compulsion to public service or something. And I, I don't think that that's, that's certainly not universal. There are an awful lot of people that, that don't, I would say probably the majority that don't feel motivated to, to work maybe against their own interests on behalf of the, the larger whole. I don't think in our society, we're not really taught. We're not really taught that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the American exceptionalism or the Jacksonian uh, individualism. Right. It's it's that we are, all of us are special. Why would I sacrifice my own, not needs exactly, but why would I, why would I sacrifice my own comfort, or success, or money, or whatever, 
for to help to help someone else like can't they do that on their own mm-hmm. couldn't they figure you know if if i'm having this good fortune or this good luck or this good experience well guess what you could too if you made better decisions <laughs> you you could too if you'd tried harder mm-hmm. you could too if you know the only the only reason that you're not that you haven't done it is because perhaps you know you were you were lazy, you didn't work hard enough, you didn't put yourself out there enough, you didn't read and study enough, or whatever it is. And there are, I think, many, many people who, who believe that. And the idea that they should sacrifice something that they feel that they uh, either have earned or deserve to help someone else, to do something beneficial for someone else, or to put themselves out to serve in a way like serving. Serving is almost, uh, almost looked down upon in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, one of my friends is a uh, a psalm, and he knows tons and tons and tons about wine. And when you get that degree or certification, rather. What I think you're really doing is you're really saying, I, I want to be of service to people and the way that I will serve them is through wine. Mm-hmm. I, will, I will serve them by helping them have a better dining experience by selecting the right kind of wine. That's basically what sommelier is doing. Mm-hmm. And there are tons and tons of jobs or whatever careers that the focal point, the reason that you're doing it is it's because you want to serve in some way. You want to serve people in some way. But when you, when you really think about that, you know, the service industry, right? There's a whole industry around that, that somehow that's like, well, that sucks, sucks for you that you have to be in a job where you do things for other people all the time. Like, God, that really sucks. <laughs> what a, you know, what an idiot you were that you're, you're stuck like helping other people. Like that's your job is like bringing food out or cooking. <laughs> like you're, you chose to work in a restaurant where you had to, you're like, you're cooking for other people. Like that's a low job, you know, but it, really it's not. And I think I think for me that kind of really really hit when I had kids and and I it occurred to me that a big part of my life and not just for the next 18 years but from then on is going to be of service to my children until I'm not capable of doing that anymore. Like part of what my job is, if if I'm if I'm going to be any good at taking care of kids, raising kids, is that I will help provide for them. I will help them when they have problems. Help them, you know, figure out what they want to do in their lives. Right. So it's kind of like you're in you're in service to someone, and you kind of realize that there is a certain good. There's a good aspect to that. But I was never taught that. Like I was never taught like do, do for others. And that's, that's my mom, by the way, is a teacher. 
Right. She was a, a career teacher and she taught uh, high school, I think, and then uh, most of her career was teaching college. So she's always been in, in, in that level of service in education. And it's a thankless job most of the time. And it's a hard job all the time. And it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> but I think she got a lot out of it because I think there was, there was an aspect to her that she knew that, you know, she was helping people in some way. So she didn't teach it to me in a direct way. She taught it to me kind of in an indirect way. She, she never said, oh, it's important to help other people. No. But I saw her going to work every day doing that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think, I think there's something strange going on. It's, um, it's not new. But it is that sense of a little bit of entitlement that like, I've, I've earned this. Why should I share it with anybody else? Mm-hmm. This is mine. I earned it. I did the work to get here. Get off, you know, get off my doorstep, get off my mm-hmm. lawn, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's, um, I mean, obviously it's not, not necessarily a good thing, but you know, and, and I think that there are, there's a lot of politics there as well. The, the philosophy of doing, doing things just for yourself. And if somebody else wants to have the kind of success that I have had, well, I, just go and do likewise. Go and do uh-huh. likewise, you know? Uh-huh. And, uh, and there's some kind of strange thing that I think happens to a person when they have become successful, especially if they're unable to see that a big part of their success was due to good fortune or was due to uh, being in, in the right place at the right time especially surrounding hard work. Like there, there are people who think, well, I, I went and I did this thing and I worked really hard at doing this thing and that's why it's successful. And if, you know, what, n- nothing's stopping you. You go do right. it. But that's not how, that's not true at all. If you come out with a new album, mm-hmm. it will be more successful than if I came out with a new album because of many, many reasons. But one of the big ones being you're known for doing albums. Like that's a thing that you've done. Somewhat. Right. And, and even if I had started making albums at the same time that you did, they wouldn't be very good. <laughs> uh, people wouldn't know about them. And I could say, well, I've been, I've been making albums for 15 years too. Well, but it wouldn't know, matter. You might, you might have made an amazing record. We'll never know. I well, mean, you might have made an amazing record 20 years ago. Maybe. But that's the thing is, is that people forget that, that every single thing that you do every day is building on the thing that came before. Yeah. But I think uh, just as I look at the, like I apply that macro idea to myself, right? I mm-hmm. don't, I do not take any ownership in a way over my, uh, over my creations, just in the sense that, I don't, I don't take a ton of, of like privilege over them or, or, or even pride in them just in the sense that this is what I'm here to do. I've done these things that it, that was natural for me to do. And so I don't feel like I, I mean, the sacrifices I made to do these things feel like a, a part of making them and not separate from them. I don't, I don't imbue those sacrifices with any greater um, nobility. 
I, I did not make me playing the guitar for hours at a time and me sitting and struggling and scribbling words is a tremendous effort and it takes a lot of vitamins mm-hmm. and like spiritual mini death. But my life is not so valuable utilized other ways that, that I look at that expense as anything I need to be repaid for. Right. Or that, that, uh, that I should be either proud of or respected for because Mm. I just, just doing it. And, and, uh, that was, that was both my inclination and also a thing that I was, I was being utilized for either by my own self or by, you know, by the, um, by the holy giraffe that runs the show or by the, the pencil <laughs> that I, you know, that I owe my sobriety to or whatever. And so, you know, that, 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 that larger focus of uh, that, that in some ways precludes me being even interested in my own suffering uh-huh. unless I'm, I mean, I'm very interested in it when I'm sitting and stewing and being a martyr, but when I look at the world, my suffering is insignificant. And so having said that, I, I maintain that idea. I don't say, I mean, because everybody says my suffering is insignificant, but then they really spend a lot of time fussing over their suffering and being indignant about other people not recognizing. And I, don't, I do want a parade for sure, but I want a parade because I'm, because I'm insecure about whether or not I'm doing a good job. The parade is just an indication that at least briefly <laughs> you I, did something right. Yeah. Other people are recognizing me as having done a good job and I go, okay, 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 okay. I can go back and do this more uh, uh, because, because I have gotten some reinforcement. Like I don't sit, I do not enjoy being the subject of a parade. I sit and squirm at the attention, but I seek it out because it, it, it validates the, you know, the, the value of the work I've done. But if I, like, as I was driving in today, I imagined that somehow I found myself in, um, in the territory of the Islamic state. Somehow I fell into their hands. (laughs) Although even if I were in the territory of the Islamic state, they're fighting for the, the rebels in Syria. I would not fall into their hands because I'm wily, but let's say I did fall into their hands and let's say they made me kneel in the desert and put a a AK 47 at the back of my head. And let's say the most, the most unlikely of all the, of all this scenario is that then the executioner, because they're videotaping me, obviously, then the executioner (laughs) would say, do you have any last words? And at least in my experience, they do not ever ask you for your last words in that situation because they don't care about your last words. You're just another infidel. But let's say there was even the opportunity to say some last words for most of the drive in today. I was ruminating on what my last words would be and how I would convey both a love for my daughter, which I would want her to, I would want her to take into her life. The idea that I was thinking about her, that that she was my last thought, but that I was, you know, I was not sad. I was not burdened by the loss of my own life, but just that I, I wanted her to know that I loved her so that she could carry that with her through her life. Right. But then also having said, I'm thinking about my daughter and she's my last thought because, you know, she is the thing that I'm proudest of and, and love the most. 
then I also would need to say something on the order of fuck you. Hmm. Right? Like God bless the United States of America and go fuck yourself. (laughs) And then boom. (laughs) And, and in a way, uh, I think the videotape of me saying, I love my daughter and God bless the United States of America and fuck you would do as much good in the world as maybe all the art that I would be, uh, that I would make for the rest of my life. You know, like, like <laughs> that video replayed a thousand times yeah. played for my daughter as like, here's the last thing he said. Um, I think that would have, I mean, it wouldn't be as good for her as me sticking around and being her father for all these years. Right. But it, but it wouldn't be awful. Yeah. It would be, that'd be pretty cool. She'd be 18. She'd be 24. Bunch of people sitting around a dorm room. Like, what'd, your, what'd your dad do? Yeah. What, what did your dad do? And she, she says, Oh, maybe you remember this video that everybody's seen a million times. Here it is. Oh my God. That was your dad. The God bless the United States of America and fuck you guy. Cause there's a way to say it. You know, you don't sit there with a furrowed brow and like God bless the United States of America. And fuck you. You say, you know what? What's my last words? God bless the United fucking States of America. And also go fuck yourself. Yeah. Pow. The bullet because they're mad at that point. They shoot you not out of some dumb sense of ridding the world of infidels, but they sh- that's personal at that point. Oh yeah. And uh you know, like there are there are plenty of people who have made you know, I have nothing uh to give I have nothing but my life to give for my country. Some of these sort of, you know, uh patriotic I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Ah, oh, right, right. Right? Uh, damn the torpedoes. There are, there, are, there are words that live in infamy or words that live in fame. fame. <laughs> uh, and and those, like, those can have profound effects on people. Um, the charge of the light brigade, you know? But anyway, part of doing unto others or part, part of doing on behalf of others is to relieve the burden. I think of that. Ultimately I see my job as being someone who helps relieve the burden somewhat so that others may have an easier time. And, and for whatever reason, the, the, the talents, the gifts I was given, in storytelling and, and whatnot are best that that gift is best sort of broadcast rather than, I mean, I, I, I could sit as a, as a high school teacher or as someone who does storytelling shows or maybe someone who just sits on a park bench yelling at pigeons, but every once in a while, a uh, intrepid, 20 year old hobo sits down on the bench and says, Hey, old man, tell me a story. And then I tell him some profound story that changes his life forever. I don't know. I got in an Uber the other day and the guy was like, how's your day? And I said, fine. How's yours? And he said, fine. And uh, I said, you know, you got any kids? And he was like, yeah, my son. And he and I are going to go see, uh, we're going to go see a, you know, a musical, and I said, your son, your 10 year old son likes musicals. And he was like, yeah, he really does. I mean, he just likes show, show big, big, you know, theatrical Broadway style shows. And I said, hmm, that's very unusual for a 10 year old. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a sports guy. 
and I kind of thought my kid would be a sports guy, but it turns out he likes he likes musicals, and I don't understand that world, but I'm kind of taking, I'm, I go with him because he's my kid. And I said, I think that's wonderful. And mm-hmm. the thing about the thing about being a ten year old who has a high level of sensitivity and aesthetic, like uh, like availability is that it's very hard to be a kid. You have to understand if you are a ball player, it's much simpler to be a 10 year old boy. If you like musicals, it's much harder to be a 10 year old. But as life goes on, if you're accepted and if that's cultivated in you, you end up being able to make a much larger contribution to the world. And this Uber driver, like a tear comes to his eye. He's like, no one's ever said that. No one's ever put it to me that way before. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, the, I'm a sensitive guy and it was hard for me to be 10, but it was much better to be 30 having been that 10 year old. And so you taking your kid to see these shows, you're doing him a tremendous favor. You don't have to understand them, right? You can still love baseball. It's not, it's not about you understanding the show. Just let him, let him be him because he doesn't go to school and have an easy time talking about what he likes. None of the other kids have ever seen Miss Saigon. Right. And, you know, that little bit of sharing with another person, because the conversation could have gone to baseball right away, and then he would have known a lot more about things than me. And we could have sat and talked about the angels, and I would have gotten out of that cab, as I often do, feeling really schooled by somebody about something that I didn't know. But this was a thing where we just stumbled into a conversation where he was, was being honest about, like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this thing with my kid. And so the next thing I said was, well, let me tell you, I just went to an Adele concert and it was amazing. And you should take him to see Adele if he, if you ever get the chance and his eyes get wide and he's like, Adele is playing tonight in LA. And I was torn about whether I should take my kid to see him. It's, you know, the tickets aren't cheap, but I just, he doesn't know Adele is here. I just didn't know if that was something, if that was like a thing I should do. And I said, listen, if I was put on this earth to do one thing, <laughs> right? I mean, this conversation actually happened just a few days ago. I was like, take your goddamn kid to see Adele tonight. Do whatever you can. Have me be the last ride because it's a, it is a tremendous, tremendous experience. It would be a huge bonding experience for you and your kid will be transformed by it. Right. And he said, as I was getting out of the car, I feel like you got in my car for a reason. And I said, I feel like that too. And those little moments, uh, like, do I believe in UFOs? Do I believe in magic? I don't know. But you got to do that kind of work for other people. Well, John, I think we should end the yeah, show. Yeah, I guess uh, that's pretty good ending. People have been complaining to us that they either they can't tell that the show is ending or they don't like the way that we're ending it. So perhaps we should end the show. Yeah, we should have a now. definite ending for the show so people know the show is over. Don't get confused about whether or not the show is still going. But also not an ending that like is jarring or in any way makes them feel like the end of the show isn't 
being respected by us, the showers. Right. So uh, let, let us think, now end now? the show. Do you feel that do people end, are ready the for the show to end? Not yet. Here, we'll do the end of show sound. Here we go.